Good evening and welcome to tonight's broadcast. Happy New Year, 2023, off to a roaring start, right out of the gate with a brand new show like we do. That's what we do, right? We do shows on the channel. And today is New Year's Day, and, um, you know, I figured it would be good to talk about a really important, impactful event in one of my favorite bands' careers. Um, you know, a lot of people might not think it's that important, but, you know, at the end of the day, when you, when you like, look at the big picture and see how things had to go the way that they went in order for, you know, it to turn out the way that it would, um, this event is actually kind of pretty significant. You know, there's a, there's a great, um, there's a, a really great, I don't know if it's a website, it's a guy, he's like a philosopher or something. Uh, he's called Wait But Why. And he is on, you can find him on Twitter and uh, Facebook and all sorts of places. And he, he posted a map today, actually. I really love this map. And it really relates, I don't know if you can see this. Ah, uh, you can't, it's too bright. There, this map. Oh man, I almost feel like posting it up. Basically, it shows it shows branches. Maybe I can make this dimmer. Let's see what that does. If that helps the situation here, can you see it? You can see it better. There you go. Oh come on, we were so close. Let's try this one more time. Last time, this is not going to work. Basically, it's a tree, and it shows you the past and the future, and it shows you uh, life life paths that are close to you and life paths that are open to you. And it's like kind of like a what if sort of thing. And I think that kind of really applies to the Beatles uh, on today's day. See it? See it right there? You can kind of, oh, now it's gone. Damn it. Whatever. I can't, I can't do this right now. The point is, is that um, the, uh, life is so full of what ifs and how something that seems like a huge setback ends up being the pathway to success. And that's exactly what we are here to talk about today. Fix this thing. and It's not showing up in my thing. Frick a fracka. Frick a fracka. What about that? What about that? Is that it? No. All right. We're not going to worry about that. We're not going to worry about it. Okay. So what if it's, it's a what if situation. So let's talk about, we're talking about the Beatles. We're talking about the Beatles on New Year's Day, 1962. So it was exactly 61 years ago that the Beatles auditioned for Decca Records. And Decca, I don't know, I don't know, they're not like a side thing. They still exist. Decca still exists. Um, in fact, they used to be, I think it started off as a German label that was then sort of folded into a British label, I believe, is what happened. Started in like 1929, got absorbed. Came British label in the maybe it was the fifties. No, maybe it was the twenties when it was absorbed. In any case, um, they were one of the big labels. You know, you had a bunch of different big labels. You had, you know, the Columbia Records existed. You had EMI. You had Decca. I mean, there were a bunch of different labels. Uh, HVB, HMV was another one. Philips, Orly, um, and all of these labels had been uh, passing on. The Beatles. See, we we actually need to go back. Let's go back to the year 1961. What happens for the Beatles in 1961? 
And that's what's going to bring us to 1962. So in 1961, um, the Beatles really begin to establish themselves as, you know, this, this force in, well, in, in Liverpool and in Eng- the greater, greater England, right? I don't really think they had sort of spread outside of England but they were really starting to become one of the top acts, top musical acts within England. Uh, they were just really making waves and making making a name for themselves. Uh, along comes along comes Brian Epstein, who sees them at the Cavern Club, I believe, and he was so stoked about this band. He's like, "I want to manage this band." He had never managed any bands. He ran a record store. Um, I guess uh, distribution, if you want to think about it like that, like he was like, you know, he had a, he had record stores. He had a, it was called NEMS uh, in England. I mean, in, uh, in the North. And um, he was, uh, he, he was really stoked on the band. So he was looking to get them a record deal. That was the big goal, get them a record deal. So here's what happens in 1961. The Beatles have, they, they drop their leather gear up to that point. The Beatles kind of like the Ramones and, you know, the Ramones take their names from Paul Ramone, which was John, which was Paul McCartney's, um, uh, you know, alter ego when he was signing into hotels and whatnot. They, um, they drop the leather gear and they start wearing matching suits and stuff like that. Um, they start to, they're playing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on stage, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, he has this principle called the outlier principle. And basically the outlier principle is this idea that if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you become a master of it. And the Beatles, he uses the Beatles as an example, particularly the idea that before the Beatles had even had a record contract, before they had even signed a record deal, they had already spent thousands and thousands of hours on stage playing together. They played, you know, I believe, I don't know how many total shows. I mean, by 2002, Paul McCartney had played over 3,000 concerts, and the majority of those thousands was with the Beatles, right? Um, But they had played so, they had spent so much time together and gotten to this place. Oh, I got to put this user in timeout. We got a bot. No, we didn't want to do that. We wanted whatever. It'll work for now. I spent thousands and thousands of hours working on their craft and getting to this place where they were just like really simpatico, simpatico. They had um they had rubbed elbows with Richard Starkey, who would later become Ringo Starr. He was the drummer of Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Another band, another very popular band, quite possibly the most popular band, right? Um, you know, Brian Epstein was also managing other acts around the time, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Uh, and I think he was also a manager for Scylla Black. But that, I mean, that stuff would come later. I'm kind of jumping all over the place here. Uh, point being is that there were all these, you know, there were all these sort of groups. Rory Storm was another one. They were also playing in Germany uh, when the Beatles were playing in Germany. What they would do is English acts would go over to Germany and they would do these, you know, these stints at clubs where they would sometimes play up to three sets a day, you know, and each set could be, you know, an hour, two hours long, you know, so they're just spending hours and hours and hours. 
So they strip the suit. They they strip down the suits. They're playing hours and hours and hours. Um, they've met R- Richard Starkey, who will eventually become Ringo Starr and become their their drummer. Um, later in later in the year, almost eight months into 1962. But you know, you know, Richard Starkey had jumped on stage with them when they were in Germany just to play a song here and there. And there was even a moment in the summer of 1961 where Pete was really sick and. And and he had to fit. He filled in for him at the Cavern Club. They were playing a lot at the Cavern Club, which is a local club in Liverpool. They were doing lunchtime sets. They're doing evening sets. They even recorded their first like real true recording was with this guy Tony Sheridan. But they were labeled as the Beat Brothers, and Tony Sheridan was the main act. It's funny how when the first when the record is first put out, it's put out as Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, and the song is My Bonnie which is like a traditional tune because up to this point, nobody's recording original songs, by the way, we're going to delve more into that later. Everybody's doing covers. So they're doing my Bonnie, right? Uh, Happy, happy new year, Kevin. They're doing my Bonnie and they record a couple other tracks and that gets put out. uh, That gets put out over the summer. And that's initially what attracts Brian Epstein to the Beatles. He wants to get a copy of My Bonnie, and he goes to see them play at the Cavern Club, and he's blown away. He's just super fucking blown away that he's seeing this band. He's like, wow, I need to get these guys signed. So Brian starts shopping them around, okay? He's he's meeting with record companies. He's going to London to secure a, a record contract. You know, it's not really working out, and, and the labels are passing, man. Columbia passes. HMV passes. Pi, which is another one, passes. Phillips passes and Orly passes. And then, you know, um, eventually, you know, Epstein gets to meet with EMI, which is a huge, huge label, right? Um, as well as DECA. And he's trying to shop, shop both of them, right? Now, what, unfortunately, um, the dude, I'm trying to remember his name, uh, from EMI, he lets, he informs Brian Epstein in late, it's like late, um, late 1961. He's like, hey, um, it's not going to happen. Ron White, that's his name, Ron White. Ron White says it's not going to go down. EMI is not interested, or at least not interested right now, whatever. So they put their sights on DECA records. And the audition is going to happen in uh new on new year's day 1962 remember the lineup now is Stu sutcliffe leaves right Stu sutcliffe leaves he stays with astrid um in germany which is where they, they met her and they met klaus vorman klaus vorman who did the art for revolver and would go on to be john lennon's bass player on numerous numerous albums and whatnot um that that's where they meet them they met them there initially so, so, so Stuart Sutcliffe, he goes over there and he stays. Paul uh, jumps over to bass. He was a third guitar player, three guitar players. He jumped over to bass because, you know, Stuart Sutcliffe, he was the fifth Beatle. And Pete Best is the drummer for now. Now, Pete dressed, Pete Best, up to this point, he's a really good looking dude. Everybody, um, he has a lot of fans. He's one of the most, po- he's the most popular Beatle because uh, he's a good looking guy. Weird situation with the road manager, Neil Espinall, I believe his name is. And Neil had actually slept with Pete's mother and had fathered a son, Rogue. And so Pete's, so Pete's road tour manager is the father of his, mind you, they're the same age. They're both in their 20s. Mona Best was her name. And that, that was Pete's mom. And she was, you know, she had really helped the Beatles a lot. Um, you know, 
for a while, they weren't even calling them, before they were calling themselves the Beatles, they were calling themselves the Silver Beatles. They were calling them, uh, they were calling themselves Johnny and the Moondogs. They were fl flirting with a lot of different names. They couldn't really figure out something that was going to work for them. And eventually they just dropped it to Beatles, right? So Pete Best is the drummer. Um, and he's, listen, he's, he was, he was good for what they needed at that time, but he was a rather mediocre drummer. He was, and you can hear it. I mean, you, you can hear it on the recordings. He's not, you know, on, on the stuff that's there. And, you know, I don't want to slag Pete Best, man. I actually saw Pete Best live once. It was crazy. Um, yeah, Pete Best actually toured. Uh, I didn't, I, he was at a festival. I didn't go to sp specifically see him. Uh, he's the only Beatle I've seen, technically, funny enough. Um, so, so Pete Best is in the band. He's kind of he's kind of holding them back a little bit, but that 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 comes a little bit later. But the point is, is that they secure a record audition at Decca for New Year's Day, nineteen sixty-two. Now, here's the thing: in England at this time, New Year's Day is not a national holiday. So it's a working day where people can go, you know, people, everything's open and working like clockwork, that sort of thing. So they're going to, they're going down on New Year's Day to do this audition. They're super friggin' nervous as well. Um, the guy, they, they had, there was this A&R guy, he's, he's Mike Smith, right? He's, he's the A&R guy for DECA. And he had actually traveled to Liverpool to see the Beatles perform at the Cavern Club. And that impressed him enough to, you know, chat with Brian Epstein. He said, okay, bring him down to London. Let's do a test in Decca's recording studio, okay? We're going to do it on New Year's Day. Um, so Neil drove them all down on New Year's Eve, 1961. Uh, but, you know, they had, <laughs> the trip actually had taken a really, really long time. They, they, they get in super late. And the next day they, you know, they, they wake up and they're, they're ready to sort of, uh, rock and roll. And, um, the, they, they go in for their audition and they do not do their best work. The whole audition is recorded by the way. So Lennon, McCartney, George Harrison, Pete Best, they get there. And, you know, the, these sorts of auditions, they were sort of known as like, they were formally known as commercial tests. And that was the way that they would determine if this would be good, this would be a, a good act for their label and that they would offer them a formal contract, okay? And um, so they're basically showing up for an informal recording session. I don't think they knew that they were being recorded. The Beatles didn't actually know that they were being recorded, you know? Um, at least I don't think so. Or at least I don't think he knew that, 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 what was going to happen next where Brian Epstein, he was going to take, he was going to take some of, he was going to have some of the recordings uh, put uh, transferred onto what, what's known as an acetate, which is a really sort of flimsy temporary um, vinyl, vinyl playback, not tape playback, record to tape. And then you, you transfer it over to an acetate. Um, and, you know, traditionally during these tests, they don't record, very many songs. They don't do very many songs. Sometimes, you know, they'll do two songs. Sometimes they'll do as many as five songs. Uh, and then, you know, they'll move on to the next one. They, they, they schedule a whole bunch of artists, right? They schedule a whole bunch of artists and they 
they go they they go to um they go down angus is saying that their audition was in north london right that makes sense um you need to see paul play it's so of course i want to see paul play i don't have the money it costs a billion friggin dollars i wish kevin it's it's on my bucket list believe me all right so in any case you you have multiple bands playing so they don't play very they don't do very many songs however the beatles somehow end up recording upwards of 15 songs okay and they and they just keep going they keep going um and the and you know what's interesting is they say to them too they you know generally record covers the beatles are recording their original tracks because here's the thing at this time as we said earlier it was very very unlikely that bands in general would play originals people wanted covers you know you had songwriters that would do compositions and then every band would go out and cover them and that was what was in fashion and what made the beatles stand out was the fact that they were doing their own original compositions they weren't the only ones but they were you know it, they were they were it was a rare thing at the time um they did three tracks there was one called like dreamers do they did uh, Hello, Little Girl, and they did something called Love of the Loved. But they did they did a lot of uh, you know popular songs. They did Three Cool Cats, you know, Three Cool Cats. Uh, they did Besame Mucho, which is great. They did Searching, which is a great song. Till There Was You. They did Money. Um, they did they just did a whole slew of songs, like fifteen songs, right? And um, Then came the, you know, rejection. So what ends up happening is they get rejected. They, they get, they, they decide, they decide not to go with the Beatles. Decca, they pass on it. It's a very, this is a very famous sort of situation um, because, you know, there, there's two sort of like, there's two sort of like uh, uh, avenues of thought on how this went down. Because it's what's popular, what's popularly known is that Decca um, had somebody at Decca was like, oh, you know, guitar groups are out. Guitar groups are, are, are going the way of the dodo. We don't want the Beatles. So they pass on the Beatles. The reality was is that there was another group that had auditioned. I forget their name. Um, uh, uh, the Tremellos. Brian Poole and the Tremellos had also auditioned. And the it just came down to logistics. The Beatles were all the way up in Liverpool, and the Tremellos were 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 local, right? They were they were in town, and they were easier to uh, they were easier. It was easier for them to commute, and I think they just ended up going with them over logistics. And so the Beatles, you know, this was a big failure for the Beatles, and that's getting to the meat. I feel like I've been very disjointed up to this point. That's getting to the meat of what I want to talk about with like success, you know, um, success through failure. Because if the Beatles had been successful at that DECA audition, perhaps they would not have become what they had become. And here is why. When they, when they don't get the DECA audition, right? Remember what I said about how Brian Epstein paid for the tape to be like duped or recorded or whatever? He sent that tape 
around to EMI again. So that somehow they get reconnected with EMI. I don't know the detail. They they go, he goes back, he's talking with with EMI again. And um they decide to because because there were three original songs, those three original songs I mentioned, because there were those three original songs on the tape, George Martin, who was the head of a sub label on EMI called Parlophone, right? He's on, he he's sort of he's the AR guy. He basically runs the label. And the label is kind of like a more of like a novelty label. They do stuff like Spike Mulligan, they do stuff like um uh peter sellers the goons right all, all sorts of stuff like that they're not doing that much they're not doing lots of music stuff you know um you know it's because it's so funny uh on one hand decca you know this guy's dick Rowe was his name dick Rowe was like hey you know uh guitar groups they are on the way out you know and he told that to brian epstein um, but at the end of the day, it's still just, you know, it, it, it was, it was just, you know, it was a matter of logistics and that allowed them to shift, go to EMI, get wind of, of George Martin, who was this A&R producer, right. Type guy. And that allowed them to sort of get where they need to go. Cause you know, George Martin is considered to be the, the real fifth Beatle, right? Without George Martin, the Beatles don't become the Beatles. And it's at George Martin's suggestion. I think it's at a lot of people's suggestions that Pete Best is just not cutting it. They can, Pete Best is no longer the right kind of uh, drummer for the Beatles. And so they end up sacking Pete. And instead, um, they tap Ringo Starr. And even then, Ringo Starr was not on the earliest. He was not on the... So they did two versions of Please Please Me, right? Um, the one with maracas or tambourine, sorry. The one with tambourine is the one that features Ringo Starr because the um, they, well, they did two sessions of, of, of Love Me Do and Ringo Starr was just not playing the drums the way that George Martin liked. So he brought in session drummer Alan White to play the drums. They came back um, later in September and re-recorded it. And that that was when and then he was, of course, he did per percussion just so he was on the track, that sort of thing. Um, point is, is that. All right. Let me sum this all up. I am so all over the place. This is like so annoying. You know, what? first, let's just do a, a very quick ad advertisement. Riotstickers.com. Riotstickers, we're the bomb. UV coating printed on vinyl, uh, sunproof, waterproof. That's the way you want to be with your stickers. We're doing a special promotion, riotstickers.com backslash from us. That's where you're going to go it's for $79 and get a thousand stickers. That's seven cents per sticker. You can't beat a price like that. Link is down below in the description. I'm going to play this little video and then I'm going to recombobulate myself and we're going to, we're going to uh, uh, talk about the meat of what this is all about. We can 
right, and we are back. Let's go. Let's go to some comments here. Uh, Brian asks, "Aren't a lot of these on that huge anthology set? Only five songs from this. Uh, it's been heavily bootlegged over the years, but only five songs have ever made it officially released to be officially released. And that has like three cool cats: Sheik of Araby, Sheik of Araby." Um, Besame Mucho, I forget what the other two are, but there's only there's only five. And let me tell you something, Pete Best, he ate and probably continues to eat. Uh, that was Pete Best's payday. You know, Pete Best very famously kicked out of the Beatles, you know, right before they broke big time success. And frankly, they might not have broken big time success if they had kept Pete Best. Point being, Pete Best never saw a, a, a true payday until the Beatles anthology. And that's when I think he became uh, a millionaire, if uh, possibly, quite possibly. I mean, he made a lot of money, got a lot of money, got some good, good scratch off of those tracks. A lot of money was made. Lot. Um, okay. So we are, hold on. Let's see what else. Yeah. Larry says they wouldn't quit. Cowabunga says, what I love about the Beatles, and a lot of people uh, do forget about this, is that they were also, that they were very, wait, what? What I love about the Beatles, and a lot of people do forget about this, but they were very disrespectful to the old pop culture. Interesting. Um, <laughs> sorry, I did not mean to put in toe and low. Angus says, I remember, I recommend taking the Beatles tour if anybody ever visits Liverpool, a lot of fun. I would love, that'd be the first thing I do if I ever made it over to Liverpool. I have been around England, but I did not have the uh, pleasure of stopping off there. A lot of great groups in Liverpool. So I'm meeting the Skeletons and uh, Trudy and the, oh God, what is their name? They have that great record called Sandman. Highly recommend anybody listen to it. Okay, so in any case, getting back to Pete Best for a minute, you know, he was, you know, he was limited, man. Um, and he had a, he, he was capable of like a high energy sort of beat, you know, uh, especially when they were in Germany. But, you know, when it came to recording in the studio, Pete Best no longer, no longer aligned with this sort of mentality. Like it didn't work. It didn't work anymore. What's up, JS? JS thinks I'm greater than Finn McKinty. He always makes me feel good when he says that. I love Finn McKinty, by the way. Finn McKinty is great. Sorry about my spelling. I do have autism. I, that's okay, man. No worries, dude. I misspell things all the time. I do not have autism. I have ADHD, but not no autism. But I, I'm, I'm misspelling things like a mofo. I do not judge, my friend. All, all is good. All is good. Um. So, you know, the idea that Pete Best wasn't really suited for recording in the studio at that time. Remember, you know, recording studios, they're fucking expensive. You know, you have to really be on the ball, you know. And back then, it was very standard to have to bring in a studio, a session drummer uh, anyway, because they needed someone that was very capable of doing what, what was needed to be done as the studio and the engineer and the producer needed it, not say what was needed for a live performance. You know what I mean? Uh, and Pete Best certainly didn't fit that bill. And even Ringo Starr at the beginning, they were like, you know, unsure. George Martin was unsure of Ringo. 
much to Ringo's chagrin, I'm, I'm sure. You know, he went along with it. He was the new guy in the band. What was he going to argue with George Martin? Probably thought he was going to get the boot. You know, uh, how humiliating to be basically left off their first recordings because, or at least as the drummer, because, you know, George Martin didn't think he could keep a simple beat. I mean, it's a very simple beat on Love Love Me Do, but apparently at the time it was, you know, it was not, he was not getting it. He's not getting it. Who knows? You know, you have to remember too, the other thing that Pete Best had over Ringo at this time was he had, um, he had chemistry, man. He had chemistry with the other three Beatles. Those dudes, part of the Beatles success story is their chemistry. And that chemistry becomes complete with Ringo Starr. But you need, you know, they had, they still had that energy with Pete Best, right? On some level. And now they're extracting that and putting in Ringo Starr and kind of, you know, making, they're making adjustments so that they can be what they need to be. Dagger Love. How are you? Happy New Year. You did miss the cryogenic show, but it's it's on the channel. Check it out. That was a fun one. That if Whoever is interested in the disastrous uh, effects of cryogenics, holy crap, we learned some stuff. That is scary. That is scary stuff. Leave it to from us to talk about the minutia of Pete Best. <laughs> hey, no problem, man. I'm glad you I'm glad you appreciate it. <laughs> I love talking about Pete Best all day. Uh, George Martin cut his teeth recording orchestral performances. That's right. And that's the other thing too, because that all of that stuff gets folded in via George Martin, you know, like on In My Life, Eleanor Rigby, that's all because, that's all because of George Martin, you know, uh, Dagger, it's, it's available. It's all, it's up on the channel. Check it out. It's still there. You just can't, you know, comment. I mean, you can't, we can't, it's not, we're not doing it live, so I can't interact with the thing, whatever. Anyway, back to the thing. So, you know, so so Pete Best is not really working. Um, it's just not happening. Um, and so here's the thing. When they do eventually go to EMI, they get George Martin and they get Ringo. And that those are the two final pieces of the puzzle in the Beatles recipe for success. So this idea of, and here's like the greater picture of it all. And this is like the big thing that I, this is the big takeaway for me. And even though my thoughts are really discombobulated tonight, and I just feel like I'm not like speaking, you know, uh, concisely the way that I want to. And I'm like all over the place. Um, the, the theme is that what we view in life as failure is not always actually failure. It is part of the process of success. You hear all the time, all the time we hear that how failure is a part of success. If you are succeeding without failing, then there's something that's not right, or you're not perhaps reaching your full potential because part of what pushes you higher and further is when you fail and you learn from your failure and then apply that to your, you know, you're you're trying again and again and again until you have success. And so for the Beatles to be rejected and to fail, you know, where they just don't get it. You know, even George Martin, when he first heard the Decca tapes, when he first heard the Decca tapes, he was like, eh, it's okay. You know, they had, what's funny is they came in 
they recorded a, they did some recording over the summer, I believe, before they were officially offered a contract. They did some recording, and their gear was all beat. And George Martin was was lecturing them. He was like laying into them about like you know what they would need to do in order to become recording artists. And you know what really made them, what really sort of made everybody simpatico, was not necessarily the musical performances. As I said, George Martin saw potential, but he wasn't like overly impressed with the Beatles. It was, it was their humor. It was their wit. You know, they, he sat, he's sitting there and he's lecturing. This is a famous story. He's lecturing the Beatles. The Beatles don't say Jack. They're just sitting there listening to George Martin talking about like, you know, all the, you know, technical aspects of recording their equipment, all this sort of stuff, probably etiquette, studio etiquette, you know, things were very prim and proper in EMI. You could read about it in George Jeffrey Emmerich's book, uh, Here, There, and Everywhere, the recording of the Beatles, where he talks about, you know, the Beatles, you know, I mean, the 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 recording engineers, they all wore white lab coats, man. It didn't look like the recording studio, it looked like a hospital. You know, everything's super clinical. Everything runs a certain way. There were certain times where you could record. So there were three different recording section periods. There was a morning, afternoon, and evening. And all of that was done because, you know, there were unions and they had to make sure. So, like, when when the Beatles are recording some of their greatest songs, like, ever, they, like, they come into the studio in the morning with, like, an idea. Sometimes they work it out right there or maybe they've already completed songs. They go in and in a period of two hours, they have executed. That's, and that, again, that goes back to this notion of chemistry. And that chemistry was established with George Martin in that initial lecturing, right? Where to bring it back around. And he asked the Beatles, like, you said nothing. I've been lecturing at you guys. You haven't said anything. And George Harrison, this is what broke, broke the, the ice with them. George Harrison says to George Martin, I don't like your tie. And when he said that, everybody laughed and that like that opened up the environment, you know, it's weird. I feel like there are some creative relationships where the relationship is super strained and fucked up. But when you're like working, you make magic. And I think like the exact opposite can be true where like the chemistry when you're like on a good kill with someone allows you to be like super creative and do like really great things. So it's like it's like. It's like very polarizing. It's either like things are super tense or things are super loving and friendly. And um and and both of those both of those can lead to magic, right? And so that was like very key. And that happened as a result of, you know, being them lecturing. Boy, I'm really all over the place with this. I guess the the overwhelming point I want to make is that by failing at the DECA audition, the Beatles were able to secure themselves at EMI working with Jeffrey Martin, George Martin, one confusing everybody's name, George Martin, and, you know, eventually bringing Ringo Starr in and becoming the fucking, becoming what they became, you know? So it's like, there are all these factors. And that's that's why I love, you know, in the same way that we love like going over the Misfit story. I love talking about the Misfit story. I love that story. I'm fascinated endlessly by the story of the Misfits as I am endlessly fascinated by the story of the Beatles. The Beatles, you know, it's, yes, it's like, it's somebody's real life and it really happened, but it's also this incredible mythology. It's this incredible tale of like, 
four ordinary people coming together through this like this beautiful chemistry and all of these interesting circumstances um, that we all attribute to like the recipe for success, including failure, uh, and becoming the greatest that there ever was. There will never be anybody as great as the Beatles, man. They are the greatest and they're the greatest for the reason. It has to do with it all happened at that certain time, at that particular time, you know, um, in that particular way. Um, when pop culture was at that place in its infancy, you know what I mean? Pop culture is like morphed and changed in a way, just in the way that like, I'm sure that maybe like the Beatles of something else, and I'm not talking about music, I'm just talking about like, I don't know, it could be in technology, it could be in something that will come at the right intersected time where, when pop culture is ready for it or, or, or collides with pop culture in just the right time where it's not too early and it's not too late. You know, if the Beatles had happened in the 90s or the 2000s, no one would probably give a shit, right? You know, think about that. Beatles had to happen exactly when they happened for that to all, you know, go. And it goes back to the beginning, talking about like the different paths that we can take and, you know, how how things, you know, sort of lay themselves out. So again, just to sum it all up, and I guess maybe it's a lesson that I can definitely learn from. And any of you out there who are creative, you know, on that creative road, like stumbling around, trying to figure shit out, like, you know, your failure or the wall that you hit is not, it doesn't have to be um, the end. It, it's just something that is, is it's, it's a part of the recipe for your success potential success, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what else to say about it, you know? Um, and the other thing too is, what well, the other thing that's amazing is they failed the DECA audition and because, because they had the tape made, they're able to sh use that tape as a tool to help them, you know, they're going around, still shopping because they're not giving up. Pretty cool. It's pretty friggin' rad. JS says, just like the relationship with Joe, Joey and Johnny Ramone. Sure. Sure, exactly. Like, go, going back to the thing, Joey and Johnny Ramone hate each other's guts, super tense, but when they're on stage, when they're on stage playing, it's magic. They make magic. And you know, it's that other side of the coin, you know, because you know what happened right after, right after, you know, he made fun of his tie, they all went out to eat. And that's when they really started to bond. That's when they really started to like, see, hey, we can all work together. And that, 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 that recipe, you know, and then the other thing too, is then, then, then that opened it up to other factors, because now that, now that they have this rapport with George Martin, who has a run of the Abbey Road facilities at EMI. And obviously the Beatles made Abbey Road what Abbey Road is today. But at the time, Abbey Road was just one of many EMI recording studios, right? And so by pushing back, you know, they started to push back. They started to say, you know, started pushing boundaries, you know, with all those, you know, guys in the white, white coats. You know, by the end of their tenure, the Beatles were recording whenever they wanted. They didn't abide by those times. The Beatles would come into the studio at four, four in the afternoon and stay till four in the morning just because, because they could, 
And they needed that. The Beatles needed to be able to do that in order for their creativity to work. JS says, from it, since you brought up the Misfits, hate to sidetrack you, but the reason they canceled the New York New Year's Eve show, do you think Glenn got pissed at Jerry's new albums attempting to siphon money from the Misfits? No, I don't think that, I don't think so. I, From my understanding, um, there, I don't know, somebody has to have surgery. Whether it's, I don't know if it's who, I think it's, maybe it's Glenn, somebody, something happened. Um, I, I don't think, I don't know, I don't think so. Personally, I don't know. I don't know. And Jerry using the skull imagery for the album of the solo project in the lawsuit say that Glenn keeps the rights to the Crimson Ghost logo. I, that I really don't know. I don't think, from my understanding, the Crimson Ghost is actually in public domain. Now, mind you, the Misfits have a lot of money and a lot of resources, and anybody who wants to use the Crimson Ghost could probably, you know, get sued they do. They do get sued. Um, you know, they're very protective of their of of their mark. But it's my understanding that Crimson Ghost is actually in public domain or fallen into public domain. So I don't know. And I don't know that you could be right. You could be right. Maybe he is pissed about that. Okay, Dagger agrees with this that Glenn is mad at Jerry using the Crimson Skull. Thought the same thing. You, you know, you guys, might, you, maybe you guys are onto something. I, I'll be honest, that never even crossed my mind. That never even crossed my mind. Because you know what else, too? I mean, uh, now, we're, now, we're, now we're talking about the friggin' misfits on a Beatles show, you guys. But uh, look at, like, look at, look at Doyle's, you know, Frankenstein skull. Is the, is the Jerry Crimson Ghost thing, isn't that kind of in the same vein? Is it too close? Why is the is the gorgeous Frankenstein not also an iteration of the Crimson Ghost, even if it looks marginally different? I I, I can't help but think that that's what Jerry was kind of going for. But yeah, it is absolutely a Crimson Ghost based. Um, but I have not heard anything about that being the reason. And you know what's funny? Like, would you really use? Would that really be a reason to like lose out on two million dollars? for a show. That's why I don't think that's the case. Cause like those dudes are going to get paid $2 million to play with the CJs on new year's Eve. Like that's ridiculous. I think actually TSOL ended up playing that show or TSOL ended up playing with the CJs at a different show. Uh, Gary X says, I, I think, I think how you're thinking JS, but honestly think uh, GD had a health thing or maybe Jerry even, yeah, I heard that one of them had a health thing, man. So I don't know. Uh, you Listen, you could be right. That's what we do here. We speculate a lot. The Jerry Skull looks a lot like the Crimson Ghost, maybe too close for comfort. But yeah, I mean, Glenn gets angry at anything, right? He, he goes off the off the rails about any, any old thing. You know, man, oh my God. In a way, the, the Beatles kind of put the misfits to shame when it comes to like inner conflict turmoil after the Beatles broke up, you know, they loved each other, but boy, Oh my God. I read a book called you never give me your money by Pete Doggett. And that details all the times that the Beatles almost reunited through the seventies. Fascinating book. And it begins when the Beatles break up. It really begins when Brian Epstein dies, but it is really, really, really good. I can't recommend it enough. 
I hope it's not Doyle who is having surgery too many years of steroids. Doyle did have surgery in the 90s. Doyle apparently does. So when I when I had Tank, remember when Tank was on my show, he mentioned, so there was like a period of time where like Doyle couldn't even like pick up the guitar in the mid-90s because like he, his back was all jacked up and he did have a corrective surgery so that he could hold his guitar, something like that. Oh my God, Dagger, don't say that ever. I'm not even going to highlight the comment that Dagger says. Dagger, we would never want that to happen and... We, I, I hope you're being facetious and we all care about you and we would miss you terribly and all the wonderful things you contribute to the chat. I'm not even going to highlight the comment, but I, yeah, he's joking. They're joking. They are joking because look at what they put right there. So there you go. <laughs> hey, got to have all my bases covered here. You got to make sure everybody's on the keel. Hope you're okay, Dagger. Hope you're okay. That's all I want to say. Yeah, Dagger is joshing, clearly. Dagger, if you're gonna if you're gonna post something that crazy, you have to add one of these emojis, please. Please. Can't be good to carry all that muscle into the into his 50s. I'll tell you, you know, you know what's funny? You know what really had me sort of reassessing a lot of people? Because I'm like really oblivious to this stuff, you know muscle building steroid stuff whatever you know there's this guy liver king i don't know if you're familiar with liver king but liver king is like you know apparently like there was like this whole thing about like steroid use or whatnot he's like pushing supplements he's like this weirdo but what's funny is i'm like looking at the liver king guy who's like 45 and like i guess you can't put on that kind of muscle when you're 45 or something i don't know but I started to realize it was like, and you know, then I started to hear about like how like the rock apparently is like juicing and stuff. And I'm just thinking in my head, I'm like going, wow, you know, like, like it just started to make me realize that there's probably a lot of people who are much older who are taking some form of, you know, steroid or whatever you want to call it, HGH or something to, to, to stay in the shape that they stay in because there's just no way. You know, your body, your body, once you reach a certain age, as a matter of fact, apparently, I'm, I guess I'm at that peak age. I'm 37 years old. And I guess that's when your body produces the most testosterone it's going to produce. So as you can tell, I have produced the most steroid, the most, the most testosterone that I'm ever going to produce. Um, if from us dies, can you leave me the evil salad dressing? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> if you know what this is, then you know it says. Notice how dark it is. Look at that. This used to be white. White. This was white. I love the gothic netting on the sides, which is so on brand for GD. You know, I showed this to the guy, you know, Guarcinio Hall from 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 two minutes to midnight or whatever. I showed him this and I told him the story and he was so absolutely disgusted and grossed out. And he's like, why is it so dark? <laughs> I was like, oh, it's dancing ranch. I was surprised that he was so grossed out by it because I'm just kind of like, I'm just kind of like, you know, like, like, dude, like, I, like, it's like the funniest thing ever. Like, it's friggin' hilarious. It's Glenn Danzig's ranch dressing from his fucking dressing room. Like, like, who, who, what madman would fucking take it? I, I was like, I had to have this. 
I have to have this. The expiration date is June seventeenth. Uh, sorry, twenty fourteen. June seventeenth, twenty fourteen. This is almost ten years out of um, out of date. And yeah, <laughs> Dan, it totally does. It looks like thousand uh, thousand island dressing now. And the fact that Doctor Chud was tagging along is so bizarre and wonderful. Oh, Doctor Chud raided. He raided that dressing room like him. Him and Sal B were like all over everything in that dressing room. We all were. We all were. But those guys, oh my God, we were just drinking those Powerades. It was. It was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. Um, I debated about telling that story on 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 air. I was like, should I like tell this story? Does this make me look like a weirdo? And then I was like, how could I not tell it? It's so ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's funny, like, it's just something I, like, never even, like, talked about. I, like, had to, like, I had to, like, let it be known. Yes, the uh, the the German gummy bears that Glenn, Glenn liked. Yeah, man, I wish, I wish I took a picture of the table and it tastes like a fast lane to heaven. Exactly. That's true. That That is true. Um, so, to, to, in conclusion for this show, what you need to remember is that the pathway to success might involve failure. And if it doesn't involve failure, <laughs> JS is, JS is, is all over the place. So, sorry, 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 Jeff. One last thing before we get back to the Pete Best stuff. Okay, go ahead. Shoot. Shoot, JS. I'm going to say what I want to say, and we'll, we'll see what JS has to say. We will, we will respond. Now, what I wanted to say is that, you know, again, it's paradoxical, but it's like, it's such a, it's such a truth about life in general. The paradox is that sometimes the way backwards is actually the way forwards. And if we can just get out of our own way, if we can clear our mind and get out of our own way, we could, you know, somehow, you know, do great things. That's all I want to say. That's my Jerry Springer final word on it. Now we can just, we can, we can shut up about it. Am I familiar with the horrors from Cheech and Chong? Um, are you talking about from one of the movies? I distinctly remember the two girls that are with Cheech and Chong in one of the movies, maybe? When when one of them has a tutu? Kevin says, never open this thing. It could destroy the world. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, an evil genie inside of this ranch dressing. And I want to write a Danzig-inspired song about it. Whoa! Evil genie in my ranch. Evil genie in my ranch. I got an itch to scratch with my ranch. I got an itch to scratch with my ranch. Whoa, whoa. Evil genie stuck in my ranch. Gonna bring the end of the world. Gonna end your world with my ranch. Gonna open up my ranch dressing. Black thunder clouds coming up over here. <laughs> Evil ranch. The, right, yes, the battle of the band scene, right? Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, okay, so what about him? The singer Finesca, I got in touch. What? I got in touch with him. The horror sing by school in Up in Smoke, and it's a punk masterpiece. All right, I'm going to go. Well, yeah, I was about to say, I'm going to go check it out on YouTube right now. But yeah, put a link in the thing so I can uh, see it. Sure. 
and somebody wants to actually, who's a musician, Kevin, it's time to write the song, Evil Ranch Genie. Evil Ranch. I got a genie in my evil ranch. There's a song there. I don't know what. Uh, just one twist of my cap and I'm going to release it in. I can't paste it. All right, I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll find it. I'll find it on YouTube. I'll check it out. No worries. One twist off of my ranch camp. <laughs> How do we go from Beatles to singing songs about evil ranch dressing? Isn't that the beauty of live streaming podcasting with uh, with an audience? That you can go from that to that. That's just what happens, man. That's just what happens. <laughs> Kevin says, if you open it, the cover of November Coming Fire will happen for real. Oh, my God. I should do a video where I open the bottle of ranch. Holy shit. Holy shit. That is such an idea for a video. But I kind of don't want, I kind of want to leave it intact, man. It's like pretty much the greatest Danzig collector's item. It's the single greatest Danzig collector's item there ever was. Um, it's catchy gold. All right, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Uh, I will. I will look it up. I will look it up. We'll, we'll quit at the hour. How about that? Nine fifty-seven. That's perfect. Um, what else do we got coming up? I don't know if anybody saw the movie Babylon. It's really good. If you are a fan of Boogie Nights, Babylon takes place in the same universe i think as boogie nights it's really freaking good um if you can hear some of it now in the air all right all right oh, all right i'm gonna listen to it right now for js this one's for you js i'm listening to it live right now but i gotta put in my earphones because don't want to get copy struck you know what i know what i'll do Evil Ranch. You write the lyrics and I'll write the music. Holy shit. All right. You want to fucking, you want to, don't put your money where your mouth is, Kevin. We're doing it. Kevin, we're doing it. Kevin, I'm going to, I'm going to send you lyrics about this ranch dressing. And Kevin, we have to collaborate on a music video around this ranch dressing. We will actually do a music video for the ranch dressing bottle. It's perfect. We're so doing it. Oh, man, Uncle Glenn is going to be so mad about this. Why does this guy keep calling me his, his, his uncle? I ain't his fucking uncle. That fucking guy, I'll punch him in the fucking face. All right. All right, we're looking up Cheech and Chong. Doing this for JS here real quick. Hold on. Um, just doing this on my phone. You know how broken down my computer is? The T, Y, U, I, and O key don't work. I actually have to plug in an external keyboard just to type on my computer. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Um, hold on one second. Uh, horrors, Cheech and Chong. Okay. Horrors, Cheech, and... Chong. Yeah, I see it right here. Okay. By school. Yeah. 
Yeah. Perfectly punk. You're rocking out in by school. Hey, looks like Dave Anian. And the drummer kind of looks like Lou Reed. I want to go to by school. They're called the whores. Piss off. That's fun. Yeah, dude. I'm all about shit like that. Matter of fact, all right, now I have a recommendation for you, JS, and I want you to actually seek this out as soon as you get off right now. Or you know what? Here, I'll pull it up for you just because I'm here. I want you. I can't do it because of my fucking keyboard. How about that? How about that? I have to do it through the the phone. Um, I am a big fan of this um, this chick. Her name is Abby Ooze, and she is the shit, man. She is the shit. And I mean, listen, if you like that, you love Abby Ooze, man. I like to hook you up with Finesca. Who is so Finesca's the singer guy? He's the singer guy. Explain that to me. Abby Ooze, um, I don't know what you would call her. I mean, she's punk as fuck, but like she here. I, I want everybody to check out this. Check out these two records that Abby Ooze put out. Um, I first became aware of Abby Ooze uh, because she was also a big fan of no bunny like me. And I was, I think I was looking through Instagram hashtags and no bunny. And she did like this cover. All right. So that's the EP she just put out, but this is her first EP called the bad egg EP. And it's just super lo-fi um, punk rock that she makes. She does all the instruments herself. She rules dude. Big Abby Ooze fan. Abby Ooze, the bad egg EP. See now we're now we're doing music recommendations. Uh, please check this out, everybody. This is a bedroom session. Abby Ooze can't recommend can't recommend Abby Ooze enough. I, I really, really. I mean, I listen to these two records over and over again compulsively. I just think she's so fucking talented, and she goes through stints where she's like recording as Abby Ooze, and then she doesn't. I'd really actually like to have her on the show, but she's very hard to get a hold of. Like she doesn't have any social media anymore. Um, but she rules, dude. Big fan of Abby's. Listen to Abby's. Check it out. And that's going to conclude our show. We're on the hour. Happy New Year, everybody. Got shows coming out up the wazoo. I'm working on the next uh, the, the next segment of the Erie Vaughn interview. That will be out. Um, part six. We got more chapters of the Stephen King book we're reading. And very soon, there's going to be a collaboration between me and Kevin. I'm writing lyrics that he is going to write music for around this bottle of ranch dressing. And it's going to be really great. So that's happening as well. Probably going to have to make a music video for it. I'm going to force Kevin to make a music video with me. It's just going to happen. I mean, this is the that's the other beautiful thing I love about this sort of podcasting stuff is that like, you do it like you you like create like on the fly. You think up weird ideas. Sometimes you try to make them a reality. Sometimes you don't. All that stuff happens because of this. And I love it. I, I really, really love it. All right. In any case, peace, hair grease. Please check out the Patreon. Please check out YouTube memberships. Please buy coffee so that I can fucking replace the keyboard on my fucking computer. 
and continue to broadcast out to you in the world. Mwah. Have a wonderful evening. See you real soon. Hey guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full-time. I want this to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. (laughs) So right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates that subscribes, that's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.